Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. How can the National Education Union win for school workers? During the pandemic, educators and support staff have been on the front line of the Tories' war for private wealth over public health. Schools became key breeding grounds for COVID-19. Then, in January, the NEU forced a humiliating government U-turn on school reopening. What are the lessons from that victory and what are the next steps to achieve safety? How can teachers reduce their staggering workload? Is there an alternative to Britain's exam factory education system? What is the way to reverse devastating cuts and privatisation? Socialist Party member Martin Powell Davis is standing for Deputy General Secretary of the NEU. Socialist Party members and others are standing for the union's ruling National Executive Committee as well. How can school workers achieve a genuinely democratic union where they are listened to, not talked at? And who stands for the serious strategy of industrial action necessary to change good union policies into real wins for members? This episode of Socialism looks at the National Education Union elections. School workers need a fighting union. Hello listeners, just a quick note about audio in this episode. Due to the lockdown conditions and the dangers during the pandemic, as well as some of the physical distances involved, we have more and more had to carry out some of our interviews remotely via telephone. Most of the time we're able to capture very high quality audio from the other end, but on occasion technology does make things a bit more difficult. You'll probably notice that Martin's audio isn't up to the usual standards. However, Nick, that's our sound engineer, and myself have listened through the whole thing, and we promise it is perfectly understandable and perfectly listenable, and most importantly, it's got fantastic political content. One of the worst hit sections of the workforce during the pandemic, but actually in the whole period of austerity running up to it as well, has been school workers. And particularly given the start of the year began, with school workers forcing a U-turn from the government. There are big questions facing school workers and particularly the main union in the schools, the National Education Union. So here with us this episode, we have Martin Powell Davis. Hello, Martin. Hello. And Martin is a science teacher, a member of the National Education Union of some standing, and he's standing in the union's elections this year hoping to become Deputy General Secretary. So we're going to ask him a little bit about what he thinks needs to happen in the union, why union members should be voting for him, and the Socialist Party's view on the whole situation. Is that all right? Absolutely. So the first question we should ask, Martin, is why are you standing in this election? Well, as you said, NEU members, school staff in general, have faced many challenges over the years. But the challenges we're facing right now, and more to the point, the challenges that are coming ahead of us, are absolutely crucial that we fight those successfully. Because the pandemic has been very difficult for all of us. But the period that comes afterwards, in many ways, is just going to be a continuation of a struggle when the government and those that back the government want us to pay for their failures. And so as we showed at the beginning of the year when we did have that victory and forced the government into a U-turn, trade union leadership will be absolutely key. And this DGS election, the Deputy General Secretary will help to determine which direction the NEU will take because there are different tendencies 
different directions a union could go. And I want to make sure that we don't become a union that's just about top-down lobbying of ministers, but one that's bottom-up, organised and fighting for our members and for the communities that we're in. So you've been a National Education Union member and a teacher for quite a while. Would you tell us a little bit about your record? Yes. I mean, I started teaching right back in the late 1980s. So I've been a NUT and now an NEU member all my life and organised in the union throughout that period. First of all, as a local union officer, a treasurer and president, and then local secretary in particular in Lewisham for over 20 years, while on there becoming elected as a member of the national executive of the NUT as it was then for Inner London, and then becoming appointed as the regional secretary for the NEU in the largest region of the union in London. And there have been people in the union who have approached you specifically asking you to stand, is that right? Absolutely, It wasn't in my mind, as I say, to be standing in this election. But when other serious forces within the union approach you and say, we think we need your voice being put forward, that you would be a candidate that could lead this union in the right direction, then obviously you have to take that seriously. And that's on that basis. I'm endorsed by two of the left groups within the union, the Education Solidarity Network and the Campaign for a Democratic Fighting Union. On the basis of their support, then absolutely I'm standing to provide that strengthened team at union headquarters and a deputy general secretary that I think can be up to the challenges ahead of us. And of course, Martin, you're a member of the Socialist Party and the Socialist Party naturally is packing your candidacy as a long-standing trade union militant and principled socialist. The nomination period, I believe, is open until September and the elections take place in October. Is that right? That's right. So it's quite a long, drawn-out affair. Nominations don't officially open, we thought, until May, but the circular has now come out, saying that, in fact, although they can't be sent in until May, general meetings can take place already. So, yes, the nomination period is already open, and obviously I'm looking for support from as many districts as possible across England and Wales. So that's some of the technical points there about the election itself and a bit of an introduction to you as a trade unionist and socialist. But as you indicated, the big immediate issue facing school workers at the moment is COVID-19. Of course, it's not just school workers who face that. Naturally, it's all of society. But the schools have become a real battleground, almost like trench warfare, really, with the government sending school staff in to face down the virus in order to keep workplaces open to continue allowing the bosses to make profit in the economy. So one of the central points of your programme, standing to be Deputy General Secretary of the NEU, is action to protect health, safety and welfare of staff and our communities from COVID-19. Could you elaborate on that a bit, Martin? Well, as you said, it is literally a life and death question for NEU members, but also for our school communities as a whole. And throughout the pandemic, I've argued and I've also tried to provide facts and analyses for people as well to counter those who sought to play down the risks that were there from fully open schools. Even now, there are people who are arguing that actually it would be safe to go back quite quickly to fully open schools. Unfortunately, that includes politicians from the Labour benches as well as from the Conservative ones. And they're backed up by statistics and science, which has been actually distorted 
throughout this pandemic and there are for example arguments being put forward at the moment that school staff have not been at a greater risk and that's completely wrong that in fact once union action had forced Boris Johnson to admit it they had to admit that schools were vectors for transmission and that's why this battle is absolutely crucial yes for staff safety but also about the safety of our communities because it's not only staff that are at risk from death infection and long covid but more to the point it's our students and our staff members then taking that virus back into their homes into their local communities and particularly to those that are even more vulnerable to the virus and that has got to stop So that's clearly the situation, but of course, as we've noted in other podcasts and in our press and other material, the year started with the National Education Union forcing an enormous and humiliating U-turn from the Tory government by instructing branches to carry out mass issuing of Section 44 notices to all their workplaces in order to close down the schools. And this led to the government saying, well, okay, you know what, we are going to at least partly close the schools. Is this the kind of action which you think needs to take place? And what do you think should be the next steps? Well, firstly, let's remember what a fantastic example that was to trade unions nationally. And it's been really good to be able to speak to other trade unionists. I've spoken at Unite meetings, at Asdor meetings and others, sharing the lessons of that struggle where by using that individual right, but using it as a group of workers together rather than just as individuals, by applying that collectively, we were able to force that U-turn so that schools were fully open, the primary schools, for just one day before Boris Johnson had to come on the television and admit that he was going to have to do a U-turn. And, you know, the reality was that we achieved more in those few days of organising around Section 44 than we had in the previous few months of attempts to appeal to the government to see sense, because they're not going to see sense, as you say. For them, it's only about keeping workplaces open by keeping schools open to provide childcare. And the crucial point was that when the National Union gave a national lead, then members absolutely followed it and took it up and organised around it. But it's certainly not over, because as soon as the victory was won, then the government and employers were trying to steal it back again. And schools have never been fully closed. In particular, while we are quite happy and agree that schools should stay open for small numbers, for those that have really got particular needs, the key worker and vulnerable children, those with special needs that really do need to be in, but on a safe basis, what instead the government has done has tried to widen that definition of key worker and vulnerable so that primary classes in particular are far larger than they should be, far larger than they were back in March during the first lockdown. And many special schools, in particular nurseries and early year settings, have been almost up to the full numbers that they had in the first place. And so that means that the virus, particularly with the dangers of the new variants that are being discussed, is actually continuing to be transferred. And the figures that the government themselves issued, but perhaps takes no notice of, have shown that outbreaks are actually beginning to increase, particularly, again, in the early years in SEN settings. And so action has got to be taken. And, you know, I've very much supported the work that have been done by health and safety organisers, particularly within the union, that work with others 
to make sure that we issued a joint union checklist, absolutely firmly stating what needed to be in place in schools at the moment, alongside Unison, United and GMB, to make sure that we are working in safe settings. But unfortunately, that checklist has not had the publicity that it should have done. And so the immediate thing I would say is that that has to be pushed very clearly. We've got a local meeting tonight here in my area in Lancaster and Morecambe to stress to reps that that's what they need to be pushing on, pushing for the risk assessments, pushing for the lower numbers in schools and making sure that that is in place and that the union is backing them on that. But also, both locally and nationally, we stand up to what is very clearly now an organised campaign to try and get the schools open, fully open, when that is absolutely not the case. You know, if we carry on as we are now, we're going to be back in that situation again where the schools have too large numbers in place and all it does, in fact, is not rescue anybody. What it actually does is drive community transmission up again. And so the steps that we took in January, I think we need to be now looking to take again. Whether that means joint section 44 application, where we all take that individual right collectively again, or indeed, where we look at ballots for industrial action to use this period now when we've got the time to make sure that that ballot is organised and won and make sure, therefore, that we're in a place where we can say collectively we are not going to put our members in an unsafe environment and we are not going to allow our communities to put in that unsafe environment either. And in fact, of course, had the national union leadership decided to initiate national strike ballots at the same time as issuing the guidance to use the Health and Safety Act 1996, the Section 44 that you can refuse to go into a workplace where you feel you are in danger. If they'd combined those two things, that would have put even more pressure on the government. And I think it's perhaps worth noting that the need, objectively, for national strike action to make the schools safe has been pushed consistently during this pandemic by Socialist Party members in the NEU. For example, we might refer to a member of ours who's on the National Executive Committee, the ruling body of the NEU, Nikki Downs, who months ago was putting forward a motion for national ballots for strike action. And certainly, I think any teacher out there in the workplace understands that there is a mood for that kind of action and has been for some time. But unfortunately, that motion which we put forward was defeated, with even some lefts voting against it, despite the mood out there, as I've said. However, following that, you had this movement from below, didn't you? You had a lot of branches, and in particular, I think we should note in Newham in East London, the Socialist Party member Louise Cafaro leads a branch there, and her and her officers and her reps were particularly diligent, as well as other branches, of course, with militant leaderships in starting to issue Section 44 notices to all employers, and this helped push the national leadership along. There are perhaps lessons from that, because in Newham, as they like to say, ballot early, ballot often. They've pushed back academisation. They've pushed back other attacks on schools. Is that the sort of approach which you think the union ought to take on board and learn from? Yeah, the problem has been, and that's been consistently an issue over years, is a lack of confidence in feeling that if we give a lead, that our members won't follow. And I think that was the key lesson of January, that all those who felt that too pessimistically, that there wouldn't be a mood, that the union would not actually get the response if it put out those kind of calls for collective action, then absolutely that wasn't the case. That there was a tremendous response. People are looking for a lead. People are worried about their safety. They're worried about 
other issues as well, which we can come on to in this discussion. And what is needed is a determined and clear lead from the union leaderships. And that's obviously what I'm trying to do by becoming a Deputy General Secretary as well, to make sure that kind of determined lead is applied from the top of the union on a more consistent basis. So that kind of approach could really transform the situation in terms of making the schools safe. But I think a lot of people, of course, have had a really difficult time having to homeschool their kids, particularly in some of the poorer parts of the community where houses are overcrowded, they haven't got the necessary electronic equipment, there's not quiet spaces for kids to work, they need to go to work to get the money. A lot of people understandably will be saying, but look, don't we need the kids back in school? Don't we need people to be able to go to work? Don't we need kids to be able to have access to proper education? And teachers and school staff understand better than anybody those kind of pressures. We understand the pressures on parents and carers. You know, we're working to try and support those students, either some within schools, as, as I've said, mainly on remote learning. And it's tough. It's tough for those of us who are doing that remote learning. It's very wearing. It's tough also on those who are doing it in that way. But having said that, you know, a lot of skills are being applied. A lot of good work is going on. But of course, there is that class divide that on the one hand, I know full well that some of my students, one admitted to me this week that he'd been trying to follow my lessons for the last two weeks just on his mobile phone. Not a way that you can really operate Microsoft Teams. We've made sure now from my workplace that we've got a laptop out to him. But of course, there are lots of students that haven't got that laptop access. You know, those who scoffed at Jeremy Corbyn's call for free broadband, look what that could have achieved if that was in place and everybody had that access. So what we mustn't have is a class divide where you have some students able to access that online or remote learning well and others that haven't because the danger is that that also becomes a safety divide where workers who are under pressure from their employers just to get themselves into work and therefore their children into school, those children, more working class children, end up in a school with too many students in one place with all the safety dangers that means whereas others don't. And one of the points that I've also been campaigning on locally as well within the NEU and has been taken up by others is as well as calling for that safety to be placed in schools, then we should have 100% pay for any parent who's having to work at home, whether that's for caring reasons or also indeed for education reasons or indeed when they're isolating. Because part of the reason why this pandemic has never been got under control is that too many people have been turning up at work when perhaps they shouldn't have done for health reasons, but knew that they had no economic basis to do otherwise. And that has been something which this government has got to take the blame for. But the other thing that I think we need to clarify is that whereas the Labour ministers have been talking about the loss of learning and, you know, people are going to lose income and the economy is going to lose if people are not back in school, you know, that purely economic way of looking at it, unfortunately, is the language of big business who only sees education in terms of what it can do to help the economy. Well, of course, it does play a role in the economy. But more to the point, it's about what it does for the health and well-being of young people and obviously getting people back into school part of that is for their own well-being for socializing it's hard being at home on your own in some circumstances but you know we don't want to go back to education again just being a production line the kind of exam factory conditions 
that we've seen with Ofsted, if you like, as your overseer, with constant testing the SATs and league tables and so on. No, we want an alternative vision. And, you know, the union's been calling for a recovery curriculum. I would definitely call for the SATs and league tables to go for a different way of looking at education, not just going back and then speeding up the conveyor belt, if you like, to make sure that more test results are just poured out the other end, but for assessment and exams to be structured in a way that gives students the opportunities to show what they can do, that, as the U-turn of last year showed, could also be based on teacher assessment rather than purely on formal tests and so on. And I'm afraid, you know, one of Blair's legacies, which we can now see from the Labour front bench again, is that they haven't got that vision and you know there will be threats to people's jobs and the economy and so on in the years to come but that won't be because schools have been closed that's because the present system has no way out of the economic crisis and of course that's a broader job that we as trade unionists and socialists have to fight as well. So it is pretty staggering really to see a whole gamut of capitalist politicians, both Tory and right-wing Labour, suddenly discovering a concern for education loss, learning loss among working class kids when they presided over an education system which was not providing them with a serious education in the first place anyway, where there was already a massive gap and when in fact really looking at the state of the economy, the jobs which even a lot of middle-class kids could hope to go into are low-paid, zero-hour, insecure, and so on. Those are really structural issues which need to be sorted out, which a year or two of, obviously, we don't want this disruption in education, but that is not the main issue here. Is that right? Correctly. You know, at the minute, the immediate need is to make sure for everybody's livelihoods and for their safety, that we address the actual needs of the COVID crisis, you know, which the government absolutely has shown that they are unable to do, that they've just put their short-term political interests always to the fore rather than the interests of people as a whole. And in fact, also, therefore, have failed their own economic targets themselves. So, you know, it's we've got to learn the lessons of that, that we can't trust big business to be able to make the right decisions and that ordinary people, as they have done during this pandemic, coming together to help each other, but also to help each other in that we come together and plan the economy together is also the way out of the crisis that we're in. We'll probably come on to that a little bit more later on, the need for schools to be in the democratic control of the community under the control of education workers, students, parents and so on, and actually publicly owned and controlled rather than the part privatisation of academies. But just to return to this point you were making about testing and also related to that, of course, teacher workload, another core point in your programme for the Deputy General Secretaryship is ending excessive workload and ending the high stakes testing that drives so much of it. It's often said that teachers' teaching conditions are students' learning conditions, so perhaps you could say a bit more about that, Martin. Yeah, I mean, before this pandemic, uh, perhaps the main issue that really would have been at the top of most school staff concerns would have been the one of excessive workload. But of course, that's not gone away. In fact, it's continued to be a real issue throughout the pandemic when people are being expected to do long hours of remote learning at the same time as supporting students in the workplace. So yeah, the workload issues haven't gone away, but they have been an issue which has really provided a problem for education for many years, where for too 
along, staff turnover has been at outrageous levels where young teachers in particular come into the workplace, are chewed up after a few years and then leave the profession. All that talent is wasted and they're simply replaced and thrown out again. And that has got to stop. We have got to take action, as I have long been arguing for, over workloads to be able to say that we refuse unacceptable demands and school battles that our support is where we've used strike action and action short of strike action to do so can certainly help that on a workplace basis but it's not an individual workplace issue you know there are the pressures that are being piled onto schools by Ofsted by SATs by all those lead tables mean that there is constant pressure to try and do more and even the best managers find that hard to resist particular when funding cuts mean that the staffing is not in place that needs to be there to actually meet the targets that are imposed on schools and that's why consistently for many many years now I have said that the union has got to call very firmly for a national contract that sets a clear limit to overall hours. Support staff are often asked to work beyond their contracted hours but many teachers don't even really have any limit on their contracted hours at all as things stand. We've got something called directed time which limits how long a teacher can be asked directly to do work by their manager but on top of that the contracts are open-ended in terms of the time that's required for planning, preparation, assessment, and so on outside the workplace. And one of the perhaps main things that then drives people to leave the job is that they just see that their evenings, their weekends, their holiday times are just taken up in endless hours of marking and preparation. And so, you know, it's interesting that I've seen other candidates now also taking up that demand for a national contract, which is great. But the key point is not just, of course, to make the demand, but how to win it. And again, therefore, what I've consistently argued for is not just that we call for a national contract, but we organise a firm national campaign, including national action, to actually win such a national contract for all who work in schools. And of course, in order to get that kind of effective action, you would also need a union which builds workplace strength to make sure that the NEU is a force to be reckoned with, which is another point in your programme for the DGS. Yes, and as we were discussing just a little while ago around the issue of a national ballot over safety issues, there's been a bit of a crisis of confidence. That's not only in the NEU, I have to say. Ever since the trade union legislation was ratcheted up even further by this government in an attempt to try to stop workers being able to take collective action with the need to get ballot thresholds of a 50% turn, all of this, remember, through a postal ballot. And that's affected trade union leaderships, including the NEU. But I think we have to learn, learn from their successes in January, but also learn from what other unions have done. The CWU, UCU, the AIS in Scotland and others have shown that you can take successful national ballots. There are ways that you can look at doing that, for example, disaggregating your ballot into different areas. But, you know, my experience has been, and I've got long experience of winning successful struggles both when I was the Lewisham Secretary and then I was the NEU Regional Secretary that we need to make clear that yes there are difficulties that have been placed in our way but they are difficulties that with successful organisation and with workplace strength we can manage to overcome and some of those are practical steps there are practical things that school workplace reps need to know about how to build a turnout about checking membership addresses and all of those kind of issues but also perhaps just as importantly if not more importantly the kind of campaign steps how you set your demands 
how you build your members into a confident team that is going to back those demands, get parents and local trade unions on side. You know, that can be done. But above all, we need that lead from the top. We need a union that sends out a clear message that we've got these demands, but we also have a way to win them. And that's through collective action and that we can be a force to be reckoned with. And indeed, we've shown that that can be the case in January. Uh, connected to that need for industrial militancy and a national leadership which is actually saying to local areas, we think you need to strike, we want you to strike, we will help you to strike if necessary. You also say that the union needs to be serious about supporting NEU reps, the local workplace shop stewards and so on, and NEU officers to defend members individually and collectively. The union has for a long time correctly put forward slogans such as we need to be an organising union, we need to have a rep in every workplace. All of those things are absolutely true. But what we need to do far better as a union is to work out how we actually build that in practice. We don't want just to have reps on a list that are then left isolated, but reps that are confident, that are trained and are supported. And most of all, I think that there is an increasing tendency, unfortunately, in the union to overlook the vital role that can be played by the local NEU districts and branches. And there is some anger, I think, that's developing, that they are being overlooked by a top-down model from the union that doesn't recognise that building strong branches and districts is absolutely crucial. Where are reps able to go for that immediate support? Not to a national advice line or to a regional office, but a network of local reps being supported by their local district and branch offices. And you know, that is absolutely, absolutely key. You know, we have as a right as a recognised union for our officers to be given time off, to actually have the time to be able to support individuals and to carry out their union duties. Obviously, also those union activities we need union officers to be carrying out. But we need to make sure that we are working far, far harder to demand that those legal rights are given to our union officers. And that means, again, a campaign of action and explaining to employers who are not releasing officers for facility time that we are going to campaign and campaign hard to make sure that those rights are given to our local officers. Now, we talked about the immediate issue of pandemic safety, the ongoing issue over many years running up to this and still going on through the pandemic of excessive workload and high stakes testing. But there's also the real serious issue of the terrible pay in the education sector. And one of your other demands is no to a pay freeze, no to cuts, fund schools and colleges to fully meet needs. Yes, because schools have already been suffering years of cuts. Colleges across the various sectors, everybody has been looking at reducing budgets. And of course, those budgets meet pupil needs. It means cuts in resources. It means cuts in the things that directly our students use. But the majority of the school and college budget is staffing costs. And what has happened over the years, it's one of the things that has led to that increase in workload that while the demands on schools and colleges has gone up, their staff numbers have been cut and therefore workload has gone up, but absolutely also pay has gone down while rent and bills 
have gone up. And for many, particularly younger workers, particularly the lower paid support staff, they really are in financial difficulties. Some of them will also be knowing full well that their family members will also perhaps have been suffering with furlough, with lack of jobs and so on as well. So that really has got to be another key campaign for the union because jobs will also be a, a threat. We can begin to see already the opening up of support staff jobs in particular, beginning to be cut and with redundancy notices being issued. And like we did when we successfully, at least in part, came together to fight the battle over pensions some years ago, again, this is an attack that all of the public sector and indeed private sector unions are fighting and we are at our strongest when we fight it together. So I would be calling as DGS that we need to get unions together to discuss concretely how we're going to work together to defend our members' incomes, our members' conditions, and our members' jobs. And the NEU needs to be playing a leading role alongside others, those unions that want to have a serious fight and give a lead and say to others, that's what we've got to do to defend our members. And in fact, there are elections in a whole number of public sector unions this year, not just the NEU, although the NEU has got more than just the Deputy General Secretary up for election. It's also the National Executive Committee and Louise Gaffaro, for example, will be standing for that, another Socialist Party member. And of course, Nikki Downs, a Socialist Party member who is currently on the NEC in the West Midlands, is standing again. So also are Alex Moore and Sheila Caffery in the South West and of course Sean McCauley in the West, alongside other standing on similar programmes for the union. There are elections for Unison, currently the largest union in the country organising local government and healthcare workers. There are elections in the PCS, the main union for national government employees. So there are opportunities here to stand candidates who represent a more militant, forward-looking approach to trade unionism, would you say? Absolutely. And I think we've got the opportunity, as I said at the beginning, not just the NEU, but the TUC and the trade union movement as a whole can come out of this pandemic facing one of two ways. It can start again to look inwards to just be an organisation that tries to put out a few, if you like, nice logos, but actually just reduces itself to lobbying and appealing. And as we've seen, that I'm afraid falls on deaf ears or it becomes an organisation that shows that it can lead and lead a successful struggle by giving a national lead to its members. And that's the role that I hope I can help play within the NEU, alongside, as you say, others who are also fighting to build fighting trade unions in their own area as well. You've mentioned that one of the key backdrop attacks on the education sector has been austerity, which of course has affected the whole public sector, cutting staff, cutting wages and so on. But the other side is privatisation, and you call for a campaign to reverse the privatisation of education, a process which is called academisation in schools in Britain, and to campaign for local authority supply pools as well. Yes, because what have we seen over the last months? We've seen how that wider breakup of the public sector has absolutely damaged our ability to respond to this pandemic, and the same goes for education too. Education has become increasingly broken up into unaccountable academy chains, and we need to reverse that. We need to bring all schools into democratic local control, where all staff are staffed under nationally agreed paying conditions. And 
somebody who is still in Lewisham, when they were calling me to say that they would be back in my campaign, made a very nice point. They said, well, look, one of the legacies that we've got here in Lewisham from you is the fact that unlike many other neighbouring boroughs in London, we haven't got anywhere near as many academies as others. And they felt that, and I'm glad to say it, that that was down to the lead that I'd set, obviously not on my own, but working with others, we always took the approach in Lewisham that we would not let an academization go through without a fight. You don't always win those fights, but we did win very many of them. Organizing up to strike action, local campaigns, demonstrations, rallies, all of the things that are required to win a successful battle. As you say, others like Louise in Newham have played the same role, and I was very pleased to be able to support those battles. As London Regional Secretary also took place in other boroughs, such as Brent and elsewhere. And, you know, we've got to fight those, and we've got to fight those with confidence that working people have seen what privatisation means, and they will support those struggles. But there's... You know, two particular battles I also wanted to mention. Since coming up here to the Northwest, where I am now, I didn't have a full-time teaching job. So like many others in my position, signed up as it's the only way that you can get yourself short-term work to supply agencies. And if anybody thinks that the gig economy and real direct privatization hasn't affected the education sector, then you need to talk to a supply teacher, teachers who cover when other teachers are off for illness or other reasons, because that has been a completely or almost completely privatized service. And therefore, it has left supply staff completely exposed in this pandemic that when schools were closed for safety reasons, rather than those supply teachers being seen as a valuable resource, as additional staffing that could be put in place either up for remote learning or in the workplaces so that class sizes could be kept lower and therefore safer. Instead, those supply staff have in many cases just been thrown aside. Some have managed to get furlough, but of course then with a reduced income, actually many have not been given furlough at all because of course furlough is a voluntary thing. It's not as supply teachers have been campaigning for an automatic right. You know, many of those firms, particularly when they had to start paying national insurance and so on as well, have been refusing to furlough supply staff. So that's a particular sector that having become a member of myself, I'll be fighting very strongly for, you know, their demands for a seat on the national executive of the union representing supply members, I think should be there. But most of all, a demand that just like we reverse academies, we also reverse the privatisation of supply agencies and fight for supply pools to be directly employed through the local authority. So again, that can become and provide a planned resource to support schools when they need those additional staff. And last but not least, then the whole issue of how the pandemic has turned and needed to turn to remote learning, again, could work in two directions because there have been very positive sides to that. You know, teachers have obviously had to learn new skills, but there's also been a real feeling of genuine cooperation. You know, the union has helped itself as well with its own encouragement of teachers to share resources so that we're not all reinventing the wheel, that we're sharing perhaps videos or presentations that we're putting together and sharing them so that others can use them and adapt them from a genuine bottom-up approach. But there is a real danger that the opposite happens, which is that various big companies see that now this is an opportunity for them to a corner a market in remote learning, to pay people 
well as low-paid tutors to impose a curriculum and some of the nationally produced materials. You know, there are some good things that are being produced, but some of them also can be, you know, very poor and centrally produced. And so, again, society, as in all things, can face both ways. We can learn good things from this pandemic, or we could see a further move to yet further privatisation and therefore a further worsening of the quality of education for young people. And you're also calling for the union to lead a battle against discrimination and inequality in schools and communities, another issue which has been really highlighted by the effects of the pandemic, hasn't it? Exactly. I mean, you know, it's inevitable in a time of crisis, unfortunately, that some politicians will seek to protect themselves by seeking to divide communities. And obviously, when people are facing a difficult time, there is always that risk that people will turn against each other. And unfortunately, it's also been a divisive issue in the union itself as well. The issues around trans rights and gender issues have been taken up in a way that hasn't helped bring people together. And obviously that's been taken up in the pages of the Socialist and by the Socialist Party, because that's the key. The unions can be organisations that cut across division and that lead people together in a united struggle. But an education union in particular has a particular role. Because as we saw in the Black Lives Matter protests, then the issue of how race is particular being covered within the school curriculum has become a key issue. The demand that we decolonize the curriculum and again look and have a bottom-up approach where we make sure that those issues of discrimination and inequality are being really led through the curriculum rather than a national curriculum that either ignores those issues or puts them across sometimes in a way which absolutely spreads some of those unequal ideas. But there are also practical issues because obviously actually the biggest issue that affects educational outcomes isn't in the end what school you go to or what teacher or member of support staff you've got in your class. It's primarily actually about poverty. That school league tables have for too long really just been league tables of poverty and inequality and show where those school populations lie. And so the real issue to tackle educational outcomes is also to tackle the issue of poverty in society and child poverty in particular. And again, that's been a debate in the issue because, of course, we've seen the absolute crisis that's developing in our communities, particularly through the pandemic. And teachers and support staff are precisely people who want to work in schools to make sure that those kind of issues are tackled. And therefore, you know, there have been practical steps that have been taken. I know, for example, Hull and EU have been very involved through the Hull Trades Council with supporting and helping local solidarity networks and a local food bank that they've helped set up. And, you know, there are other NEU districts, I know down in London, similarly, doing work through genuine solidarity. But there's been a large controversy in the last week or so within the union where the union pulled everybody together in what they build as a big announcement. A lot of people thought it would be about school safety, but actually turned out, without any real prior consultation, to be about a £1 million donation to a national appeal to help children and learn but rather than going through those solidarity networks rather than saying to districts who do you know in your areas which links can you make in your local areas it was done through a national campaign led by the daily mirror and through the viking office suppliers company which as far as we can see really means that in fact rather than that being donated and managed locally as i think many teachers possibly still think it is that it's actually being managed through viking stroke office depot and, you know, that isn't the way that you tackle discrimination and inequality. And just finally, you know, a practical point, which I also raise in my programme, 
how does discrimination and inequality most impact directly with school staff within NEU members? Sadly, it's often through the application of performance pay. That One of the counter-reforms that was brought in by the Tories, by Michael Gove and others, was to say that teachers increasingly don't get an automatic step up the national pay scale. It's dependent on a performance pay system which puts people under incredible pressures and you know leads to a teaching to the test and an emphasis on those such results and so on if your pay appraisal depends on it. And unfortunately and inevitably, as we always see, in performance pay mechanisms does lead to discrimination and inequality as well. And certainly as part of that wider struggle for a new national contract, I would want to make sure that the national contract absolutely assured that that performance pay was completely got rid of. In fact, already even some individual academy chains have recognised that it actually causes more harm than good from the demoralisation and stress it causes and have done away with it. And that is a step that the union has to follow and fight to make sure that that happens nationally. And this issue, which has been really controversial in the union recently, of this £1 million of union funds going to this office supply company, you can understand, I think, a lot of members saying, well, surely the best use of that £1 million, we don't begrudge it going to students who need it. Of course, as you say, it would be much better if the actual local districts decided how to administer those funds. That would be what would be necessary. But even better, surely, would be for that to be spent on something like strike pay in a battle to get the government and the employers to provide this stuff consistently. And that was, I think, a lot of the anger, that this was a decision that was made at head office. A million pounds is, if you like, being freed up by the savings. I appreciate that through some of the campaigns that we've not been able to organise precisely because there is a lockdown. But if you've got a one million pounds fund, then you should consult with members as to how to spend it. Supply colleagues have been very angry. Many of them are needing hardship payments because they're out of work. But as you say, above all, what a union is, is not just an organisation which tries to support individuals who have lost out as a result of the failings of government. It's above all a organisation that uses its collective strength to make sure that that government has to change course permanently. And yes, absolutely, that money, certainly some of that money, would have been better spent on making sure that what I've been talking about, about building that workplace strength, about making sure we build that collective struggle, then that's where I would see a priority to be spending union funds. And that fear of that collective strength, which the capitalists and their political representatives have, is also shown in the recent banning by the Tories, isn't it, of materials which promote or originate from anti-capitalist or law-breaking ideas and groups. But of course, if working people hadn't fought capitalism and hadn't in fact broken the law at various points in history in some of those struggles, you wouldn't have rights like the vote, you wouldn't have the right to even join a trade union, you wouldn't have state education. Well, I mean, it's farcical if they think that anybody can teach history in a way that doesn't actually reveal that actually it's a history of struggle. Obviously, that is hidden. But to say that you cannot use the word capitalism, I mean, it shows you, unfortunately, that we now in a situation where they do fear that from a position, say, in the 60s, where capitalism was in an upswing, they were prepared to see a wider discussion and a freeing up to some extent of the education curriculum. There's a real danger that we go completely in the other direction and so yes teacher trade unionists 
all trade unionists are going to have a major role to fight to make sure that that curriculum that we want is not the restricted curriculum that they want to put in place. That was always right at the very beginning of the history of the Labour movement, the contradiction that you know the Victorian factory owners wanted an educated workforce, but the rising trade union movement wanted their children educated as well, but for a very different purpose. And it was a question of then, the phrase used was for really useful knowledge. Is it for their knowledge or for our knowledge? And, uh, you know, we've got to make clear that it's a curriculum that's in the interests of ourselves that we're putting forward and campaigning for in schools. Now, you've mentioned some of the historic struggles of the labour movement for education itself. But of course, there was also the struggle to break out of what was called craft unionism, to organise all grades within particular workplaces, to stop the bosses from turning this or that section of the workforce against other sections. And you call for a national education union that recruits and organises all education workers working in our schools and colleges. Yes, and this isn't without its controversy because, of course, there are other unions that already organise staff within schools, GMB, Unison, United and others. And certainly what I'm not calling for is for a inter-union rivalry and you know a recruitment battle. What I am saying is that unions should be working together, that all unions should have the ability to organise and recruit, and that the NEU alongside those other unions should have the ability to negotiate on behalf of support staff as well as on behalf of teachers. Because support staff in particular are at the sharp end of the attacks. They are the part of the workforce with the lowest pay. They are the part of the workforce that is most vulnerable to job cuts. And indeed, right now, they've been the part of the workforce that's been most vulnerable to safety. The recent ONS statistics talking about the danger of death in the schools didn't even include support staff. It only looks what they called educational professionals and I had to do my own analysis to show that actually of course school assistants classroom assistants in particular also have been at risk in the pandemic and right now we're in a situation with this parcel opening where many teachers are at home learning and teaching I should say remotely but in some schools unfortunately that's not been done in an equal way and it's support staff that have been left in school in the more vulnerable conditions working with classes and we demand and it is indeed an NEU demand which needs to be applied that those rotors are applied equally so as you say it makes much more sense for the union not to be operating on a craft basis of just one section of the education workforce, but to be able to recruit and then organise right across staff. And certainly the kind of struggles that I talked about before, supporting the academisation struggles in areas like Newham and Brent, then precisely because the NEU was taking a lead in those areas, you know, there were other good examples, say, down in Greenwich, where the NEU and GMB were mounting those struggles together and therefore were on the picket lines together. But in those areas where it was only the NEU was giving a lead, well, quite rightly, support staff voted with their feet and said, I want to join a union that is fighting for me and for my community. And I have to say that the fact that therefore both teachers and support staff were out on strike together made a real difference to the strength of that campaign and helped to make sure that in many of those battles were indeed victorious. You also call for a genuinely democratic union where members are listened to, not just talked at, and that's been underlined by the controversy over the £1 million charitable donation, but also, of course, in the way that the union perhaps has responded to 
or not responded to, the mood for a real fight in the pandemic recently and indeed in the years running up to it, would you say? Well, I think it's been an issue that's particularly been a concern in the last few months and even weeks. There is a real concern. Just in January, obviously, as we discussed, there was that issue of the £1 million donation without prior consultation. But the recovery plan, again, has just come out in the last few days. It's got some good elements within it, such as calling for the laptops and broadband and so on. But the section within it on safety, without consulting with the Health and Safety Organising Forum, waters down what we've just previously put out in the joint checklist. So again, a feeling that things are being imposed from on top rather than talking to members from below. And also, it's very much an internal issue, but a lot of anger over the way that districts have been told precisely how they can spend their local funds. And there is a real concern that the union is becoming centralised too top-down in the way that it operates. And unfortunately, it's also matched because our national executive, I fear, is one where there's not enough discussion. All of the other candidates that are standing in this election declared up to now three others are all part of that executive. And so, you know, I'm standing, yes, as someone who wants to work as part of a team. I've shown as a national executive member, as a London regional secretary, of course I can work with others. Most people know I'm pretty easy to get on with, but... You know, I'm somebody who is not going to be told that the line from the top is this and therefore I mustn't question it. I need to be the person who can be a voice from those from below who is saying, hang on, you've not listened to our concerns and be somebody who can speak out when I need to and question decisions that are made that listens and consults. And I think that makes for a much stronger union and make sure also that members in the workplace feel that their views and after all, they're always going to be far more in tune with the immediate concerns of members. They're the ones in the workplace that anyone at HQ ever can be. Okay, so that's already proven to be one of the biggest issues in the election, as you've said, Martin. But you're also promising to be a Deputy General Secretary that stays in touch with the problems that members are facing. Absolutely. Now, obviously, if you're Deputy General Secretary, you're no longer in the workplace. You've got to devote your time to being that union leader. But you need to be listening, as I said before. You need to make sure that you're in touch with members, speaking to them at all times. But also, you've got to make sure that actually your consciousness is not determined by the conditions that you face. And unfortunately, I think inevitably, if you're a trade unionist on a very large salary, you can be out of touch with the kind of conditions that ordinary members are facing. And I think the last Deputy General Secretary that we also have appointed, TGS's, was appointed on a salary around £87,000, which of course is a lot greater than the incomes of the vast majority of our members. And so I've pledged that if that is a salary that's allocated to the job, well, I won't accept more than a teacher's salary for carrying out my role and then I'd make sure that what was above and beyond that was used for solidarity purposes, for a solidarity fund, for support for members and for other trade unions in struggle and to build the wider labour movement so that, you know, my income is not there. My standing for the Deputy General Secretary is not about my personal career, it's not about my personal gain, but it's to make sure that I'm there to help lead a fighting union for our members, for our communities, and indeed for an education union, for our next generation coming through the schools and colleges as well. And indeed, that is a constitutional matter for members of the Socialist Party. It's one of our core principles that where our members stand for public office, that they only take the salary of an average skilled worker or the equivalent. And that's always been how we've operated. Some of the lefts have adopted that as well from time to time. But I think we've heard quite a lot about what needs to happen in the NEU. I'm sure 
any members and other trade unionists will be enthused by what you've said here, Martin. So how can they help the campaign or find out more about it? Well, as we said at the beginning, the timetable of the election means it's quite a long drawn out affair through most of the year, with nominations beginning now, but the actual election not taking place until October. So that's a long period when people can find out more. I'm sure there will be new issues that come up as well. But I've got a campaign website, martin4dgs.co.uk, where people can see what I'm putting forward. They can also sign up for updates so that they can be kept up to date with the campaign directly to their email. So look out for that website. Go on there and sign up for updates. Share it and let your colleagues know about it as well. But most of all at the moment, I would ask colleagues to find out when their local nomination meeting is taking place. Make sure that they attend themselves and ask their colleagues to do so and to back my nomination because with as many nominations as possible, with the programme and the support that I'm getting, so far, you know, I'm confident that we can have a really good shot at this election in October and then hopefully a chance not just to be talking about these demands and the programme that I've been putting forward today, but actually to put it in practice as the new Deputy General Secretary of the National Education Union. So that's martin for dgscouk And as always, listeners, if you like what you've heard, recommend us to your co-workers and friends, particularly on this occasion in the NEU, donate to help fund us. And if you agree, join the Socialists. Thanks very much, Martin. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Martin Powell Davis and I'm James Ivans. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? Now is the time. Apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to the capitalists. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.